point number one. No. We got through the first paragraph, though. We got through the first paragraph. So we were dealing with New Testament. And anytime you guys want to talk about this or talk about something different, just let me know because we do have quite a few to go through. So remember, we talked about how mysteries are what? What is a mist what is a New Testament mystery? Not fully understandable. Truth it's, that was revealed. Hmm? Truth revealed that was previously hidden. It almost sounded like you read that. Read <laughs> that first yeah, remember it's something in the New Testament that is revealed that was either previously um, concealed or veiled in the Old Testament. And so we so what we're gonna be doing is going through each time the New Testament uses the word mystery. And we're going to examine it. And last week we did the first one. Jews and Gentiles are one in Christ. Remember that? Mm -hmm. How now, since the cross, that... Well, I'll just read my notes here, which we didn't even read. Um, this mystery is probably one of the most profound mysteries we will study. It is clear, it is clear the issue here is now Gentiles, through the gospel, have immediate access to salvation in God's presence. They do not have to be converted to Judaism first, but can immediately enter into God's grace directly through the gospel. So that's why when Jesus took his last breath, the veil was torn supernaturally of the temple. Before the temple that was destroyed in 70 AD, it was supernaturally torn, and that was a clear indication that access into the Holy of Holies, access to God, is now open to anybody who will believe in Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter, Jew, Gentile, where, whatever person you are on the planet. Um, and in a sense, in the Old Testament, before that, salvation was available to all people in a sense as well. Okay, so I don't want to say that now, because we talked about Gentile, there were Gentiles saved in the Old, Old Testament. Um, because they, the Abrahamic covenant is the, is the covenant of the, you know, the covenant of the promise, the covenant of grace was made to Abraham. Okay, and so there's people, not to, I don't want to chase all these rabbits like I did last time, where there's people saved in the Old Covenant who were Gentiles, but then, but then they had to join the people of God, the people of Israel, after they believed, in order to do the, you know, the, the uh, you know, to do the animal sacrifices and everything like that. But it's, there's a couple points where um, Rahab the harlot was somebody who ended up believing in the true God. She was a Gentile. Just rough top of my head here. Ruth, in the book of Ruth. Um, I'm trying to think out. Ruth and Naomi. Ruth was the daughter-in-law, Gentile. She ended up believing in the true God, the true God of Israel, and she she came home with Naomi. And so there's, there's instances in the Old Testament where Gentiles, non-Jews, got saved. But there just weren't very many. And God primarily worked within the people of Israel. But, but again, the point was that if you became saved, then you joined the people of God. You, you had to become part of that system, not to be saved, but just as part of that. All right. Before Christ and Pentecost, God primarily dealt savingly with the, within the Jewish nation. But now God is saving primarily Gentiles after the Jews, as a nation, rejected and killed their Messiah. Temporarily. See Romans 11. So we... we huh? Where is this? This is the second paragraph, or the paragraph below. Oh, second yeah. paragraph, okay. Yeah. I'm in the middle of the one below the okay. number one, yeah. <clears throat> so we talked about how one the, the turning point in God dealing with, with the Jewish nation primarily, with Gentile exceptions, to now, it's the other way. It's been flipped. Now, now God is dealing in the church age primarily saving Gentiles with Jewish, Jewish exceptions. There is a remnant of Jews who are still believing, but it's a very small remnant. And that's explained in the opening of chapter 11, Romans chapter 11. But that's why is that? Because they rejected their Messiah nationally. Not every single Jew rejected their Messiah. Obviously, Peter was a Jew. And there was other people who, by God's grace, believed in him. But the vast majority of people, when Jesus was here, and especially the leadership in the nation, rejected him and had him crucified. And so God used that wicked action of theirs to, of course, accomplish salvation when, 
when Christ was on the cross, he, remember we talk about this all the time, that he was treated as if he committed all, all the sins of anybody who had ever or who would ever believe. Specifically, every last sin. That's what makes, that's why we have our sins forgiven. Is because when Jesus Christ was hanging on the cross, and I believe specifically during the three hours of darkness, he was treated as if he committed Jay Krutner's every sin I've ever committed and every sin I will ever commit. He paid, he actually paid the perfect measurement of whatever that would be, whatever I'd be suffering in hell for all of eternity, which I deserve. He paid that along with every other single person who God chose to save in eternity past. And so God chose, chose used the rejection, used the nation of Israel. They rejected, they demanded he be the king of the Jews, they, and he was, and he is, and he will be. They demanded that he be crucified. And so God used that to accomplish salvation. And then after that, part of the, the punishment uh, of the rejection of the Israelites, of their Messiah, has been this 2,000-year hardening of of. The, the nation has very few of them believe ever since then. There are some, but just look at the nation of Israel today. There are vast, 99% of them are, are Christ, not only Christ rejectors, they're Christ haters. You know, every I check out YouTube quite a bit to see what's going on over there with the this whole Sanhedrin thing building up and they're talking about the third temple and it's legitimate talk. But they're... This whole peace deal is going to be interesting to see how that fits into a lot of things. The what? They love Trump. He's going what's his name? He's making a city in the Heights. Golan Heights. Golan Heights after Trump. Yeah. Well, I'll say this. Um, I, I, I like Trump as a president. And... And I think what he's done for Israel has been a good thing. Now, it'll be interesting to see what comes out about this peace, this mega peace deal coming up to see how he treats them. But it appears that he's, he's, he's given, tried to give them more of what they want than, than the uh, Palestinians, which is, in my opinion, the way it should be because it's their land, biblically. So it'll be interesting to see how this all shakes out. There's a whole lot of stuff going on over there that's, that's biblically eye-catching. Only God knows the future here, but but primarily right now they are hardened. The reason they don't believe is because they're hardened. God has hardened them. Now, what does that mean? That sounds like well, God's blocking them from coming, you know, to come to Christ. That's not what hardening means. Hardening means He turns them over to what they want. When God saves anybody, this is what's regeneration, what we call the effective call, the call of God. Whenever person gets saved, God regenerates that heart. He opens their heart to believe. And he overcomes their, their, their hatred of him and their love for sin. And he flips that. And so to, all he has to do to harden somebody is to remove his restraint, remove his grace, and they get what they want. And they get the consequences of what they want. And that's what he's doing nationally to Israel. He's turning them over to what they, what they want. They didn't want their king. They killed their king. They crucified their king. They would rather have a... Uh, they, they had a choice to uh, Jesus to be set free by Pilate or Barnabas. Was it Barnabas or Barabbas? Barabbas, and he was a basically a murderer. He was a rioter and a murderer. And they chose him over Christ because they hated him so much. And so that hardening, uh, part of that consequence of that is they're hardened now. Nationally. Now, like I said, there's a few Jewish believers that come to faith, God regenerates them individually. But for the most part right now, they're hardened as a nation. But it's only temporary. That's what you can see that in Romans 11. We're not going to go into that right now. But you can see that they're temporarily set aside. All right. But even the current remnant of Jews now being saved are on equal status um, and not above the Gentiles in Christ. So we're all equal. In Christ, there's no there's no elevation of a Jewish Christian over a Gentile Christian, or vice versa. There's no elevation of a male Christian over a female Christian, or vice versa. We're all one in Christ. We're all equal in Christ. Now, it doesn't mean there's not roles that are gender specific, because there are, but that's a different issue. But but based upon just the equality of the of the person before God, we're all the same: Jew, Gentile, uh, male, female, 
slave free, you know, whatever the condition is, the Bible says we're all one. While there are still distinctions, those distinctions are meaningless. Not only by not only that, but the ceremonial laws that distinguish Israel and Gentile nations are nullified. In the old covenant, that's what distinguished Israel from all the other nations, because God gave them the ceremonial laws to perform. And he dealt with them primarily, as we talked about. But those are now no there's that's why we say there's no there's no reason for a temple. There's no reason for animal sacrifices. There's no reason for those Levitical laws. There's no reason for a Levitical priesthood. None whatsoever. No reason for a Sanhedrin. There's no reason for any of it anymore because it's all been abolished. Those were temporary things that pointed to Christ. When Christ came and fulfilled all that law, those were immediately abolished. When the veil was torn, in my opinion, the next animal sacrificed after he breathed his last was a sinful animal sacrifice. The one before he breathed his last, all those Passover ones that were slaughtered right about the same time he was being killed were legitimate ones because they were commanded. But once he took his last breath, and nullified, he nullified the Old Covenant, ratified the New Covenant. All those animal sacrifices became not necessary because they pointed to him and now it's finished. Does that make sense? So, but there are still distinctions, obviously. So we're not, we're saying those distinctions in Christ are meaningless. We talked about that last week a little bit. I'm a male, you're a female. That doesn't change because we we're Christians. You're still you're a female Christian. I'm a male Christian, but it's meaningless before God in a sense of I'm not elevated because I'm a male before, and nor you, nor Jew, nor Gentile. But there are still distinctions, and so I we don't say well, there's no such thing as there are people who will almost talk as if there's no such thing as a Jew anymore because they're Jewish, you know, because they're, there is ethnic Israelites still in Christ or out of Christ. You know, there is, there is such thing as a Jewish race ethnically. And that is one of the most miraculous things in, in the history of the world that God has done is we mentioned, I think we mentioned last week that every people group that's ever been kicked out of their land for a significant amount of time, even 10 to 15 years, they don't ever come back. They assimilate into where they go, where they get exiled to, and then they just correlate into there, and usually they lose their religion. They just kind of assimilate into the whatever's there, and their language is the same thing. They just adapt their language to their language, and so they, over time, they never come back. But, the, but there's one exception to that, and that's Israel. They came back 2,000 years after they were destroyed in 70 AD, and they're with their religion intact, their language intact, and their ethnic uh, distinctions intact. And that's what language do they speak? Hebrew. Hebrew. Yes, Hebrew. And so it's still intact. Now a lot of them speak English as well. English is kind of a universal language, especially in a civilized... Saudi Arabia and all the other ones around Hebrew too. Arabic. I'm looking for help here. I think it's Arabic. He wants help from you. Arabic, I think, is mostly what the what the Islamic nations or the Arabic nations. And Jesus, if I remember right off the top of my head, he spoke Aramaic. And also Hebrew and also Greek. Greek. But primarily he spoke Aramaic, if I remember right. What are you calling it? Aramaic. I'm not sure what Aramaic is. Yeah. I did a little research on what he spoke, but he spoke obviously. Aramaic. Aramaic. He obviously could speak Greek because he, he or uh, yeah, Greek because he spoke to a lot of Romans. I don't know. We'll have to, I didn't mean to bring that up right now because I don't want to put out there like false information. He spoke. Well, let Dad look into that while we continue on. Okay. All right. So the so the ceremonial laws that distinguish Israel and Gentile nations are nullified, having been abolished by Christ's fulfillment of what those ceremonial laws pointed to, himself and his work. For a saved Jew to practice those ceremonial laws like animal sacrifices would now be sinful. This mystery, and you see these people who want to build the third temple and, and do the animal sacrifices, they're not saved Jews. They're lost. They, they deny Christ. That's why they want to do that, because they, they think they need to do that in order to have their sins forgiven, where... That's not how it is. And it never forgave any sin. Ever. All those animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, 
the Bible's clear in Hebrews that the blood of the blood of bulls and goats didn't take away any sin. They pointed to the people who practiced those animal sacrifices from the heart, knew they were sinners, and they knew that they, that God would one day make an atonement, and and they probably knew that he you know the Messiah, but they didn't specifically know what we know. But they were doing those animal sacrifices knowing that this doesn't take away sin, but it's pointing to one day God will do that. But they were required to do that then. It was a commandment of God. And so it's like it was it was not it was not saving in any sense, but it was fruit of somebody who was saved. If you were saved in the old covenant, then you would want to do the animal sacrifices because they were required by believers to do that. But if you're not a believer, in the true God, and you didn't know you were a sinner, and you weren't looking forward to a, an ultimate atonement, and you were just doing the animal sacrifices that didn't do anything for you, you're lost. And there are a lot of people in the Israelite nation that did that. God has always saved a remnant. Sad, I mean, I'll say sadly because he, his plan is perfect, but on a human level, it just seems biblical that he just saves a few because that's what he decided to do to, to, to bring glory to himself eternally. And so we should be thankful as Christians that we are one of the few. Now, there's, I think there's waves of history where he, he revives and does revivals and genuine converts more than other time periods. And we always pray for that. We want to see that. But oh, it just seems like the history of the world, biblically, it's called the doctrine of the remnant. He saves those he has chosen, which he has chosen to save fewer than that are lost, at least it appears. All right. This mystery was alluded to, yet veiled in the Old Testament. And, you, and there's a couple of verses there, Genesis 12, 3, Isaiah 49, 6. I talked about, I'll look up one of them. It's been a long time since I wrote this, so I'm not super fresh on this. I'll look up Isaiah 49, I hope I, got, I hope I got it right. I'll look up Isaiah 49.6. He says, Is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And so you see, God's intention was always to reach the Gentile nations. Now you see there where it's it's kind of a complicated issue there where that verse we read, where you know when God set up when God set aside Israel in the Old Covenant, He didn't set them aside so they would be isolated people of God. the 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 purpose was so that they would bring glory to God and would demonstrate and you know evangelize the nations that was the goal that was supposed to be the goal of Israel but of course you know you read through the Old Testament they are they were always in idolatry so instead of converting the nations they were being converted by the nation's idolatries and so it was this one cycle after another of, of them just falling into pagan idolatry and never really getting much done in that purpose so God used the rejection of the Messiah to share the gospel, which is the age we're in now. And then I do believe ultimately, even in the tribulation period, it appears there's 144,000 Jewish witnesses that that do evangelize the world. And so there's kind of a fulfillment of that that literally will happen in the tribulation period. And, um, and then also in the millennial kingdom, it'll be interesting to see how that, that's a different, more complex situation because we'll have mixture of glorified people and lost people and so there's probably going to be a, a obviously Christ is going to be ruling from where Israel in the millennial kingdom and through all of eternity but in in the millennial kingdom I believe there's going to be lost people who need to be evangelized and so so you see the purpose of Israel was to go to the nations and and to share God's who God is and the way to salvation but that they never did they just fell into idolatry all the time and then they only ended up killing their Messiah. And so now God has used, used that rejection to spread the gospel to the nations. But you see the intention there. And of course, in that Genesis 12, 3 verse, I think that's Abrahamic, you know, I will bless you and make you a... Yeah, I will bless 
those who bless you. He's talking to Ab- God's talking to Abraham here. He says, "I will bless those who bless you, and the ones who the one who curses you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed." So you see, the Abrahamic covenant and promise wasn't just to Israel; it was through Israel to the nations, and so he promised that. Of course, he used the uh, the cross and the proclamation of the gospel now to fulfill that primarily. All right, so we got through number one. Now we'll, go, we'll just move right into number two and see if we can get several of these done. The church age. And this is Ephesians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. And to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery for ages, which is hidden in God, who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. The church age is often called, appropriately so, the parentheses between Christ's glorification and the setup of his kingdom. If you look at just about any messianic prophecy of the Old Testament, you see coming of the Lord resulting in his establishment and, or you see the coming of the Lord resulting in the, his establishment of his rule. The mystery in his is in his first coming, he accomplished the re, his redemptive work, and and there was his departure and delay, now, now past 2,000 years, before his second coming to establish his sovereign rule. The mystery the prophets didn't see was the departure and delay in which he builds his church from heaven by his spirit, primarily, though not entirely, made up of elect Gentiles. Okay, so you see what we're dealing with here is and we're going to read a couple of scriptures here where there are all kinds of messianic texts in the Old Covenant that that it makes it appear, it looks like, okay, the Messiah comes, he sets up his kingdom. Messiah comes the first time, he sets up his kingdom. Or in even the suffering, the Isaiah 53, it appears that he comes, suffers, you know, does his work, and then he sets up his kingdom. And so you don't see what we have is his ascension and delay in his second coming. Those are mysteries. And you realize, remember when we were, when we were, we've been in Acts, I think it's Acts 1 8, where they ask him, Is it now that you're going to set up your kingdom to Israel? Because they, they knew the prophecies that were being fulfilled and that they didn't, even at that moment, right before he ascended, they didn't think he was going to ascend, even though he told them that he was going to send back to his father. But the but you can see and it's interesting to see this actually in the text. All right, all right. This is Zechariah chapter nine, verses nine and ten. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Who do you think the daughter of Zion is? Mary. It's Jerusalem. No, no, that's, that's not a bad guess though. Because think daughter. I just learned that the other day. I, I, I always assumed that was the daughter of Zion was Israel, but it's Jerusalem. Right, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. I'll have to look into that. See, this is when I say I don't know. I'll look into that. All right, now here's where it gets real good. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Gracie, don't stir him up. All right, so what does that refer to? Right, Gracie, what does that refer to when, when it says, He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey? What? What is that referring to? What do you mean? Who rode in on a donkey? Who you, really? Right. That's she. That's Jesus and his. Can I go throw this in the woods? No, it's raining right now. I have a sweatshirt in the car. No. Hey, if I get sick, guess what? No school on Monday. I don't see a problem with that. But you remember when he came in his his triumphal entry? That's what they call it into Jerusalem. What did he ride? And then they have a donkey. A donkey. They put palm leaves down, but then aren't they the same people who killed him? They are. They are the hey, same people that they are. They are same people hey, that reject him. Murdered by the same person, we're gonna have a big problem. That's a that is a problem. 
All right, so here we go. Even on a colt, the fall of a donkey. So there's Jesus' first coming. You're not paying attention. All right, you both are. Have fun. Have fun. All right, don't get him all stirred up. We're getting into the good stuff. All right, so so there's verse 9. Listen, this, there's verse 9. So we got the triumphal entry of Jesus coming into... On, yeah, on his first coming. All right, in verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. That's another word for Israel. And the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. You can see in verse 9 the prediction of Jesus' triumphal entry at his first advent on a donkey. Then verse 10 jumps instantly to his second coming and the establishment of his millennial kingdom. No more war against Israel and worldwide peace. That will happen when he returns. I don't see how you got that from 10. Well, he says, I will cut off the chariot. That's in the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war. Those are all three ways of saying there's going to be no more war. Okay. And so he's saying he's going to bring peace to Israel. And he will speak peace to the nations, worldwide peace. And his dominion, we're talking about the Messiah here, his dominion will be from sea to sea. This is true. This is clearly him ruling in the millennial kingdom when he, after he returns. And from the river to the ends of the earth. So then there's just, this is one instance of many where there will be two verses in a row and it talks about, you can see one of them's clearly been already fulfilled in his first coming. And then there's the, 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 the kingdom rule. And, that, and there was never the explanation of the ascension and delay in, in second coming. And so that's a, that was a mystery that was just not, it, was, it just wasn't, it was concealed in the Old Covenant. All right. So the prophets were given the mystery of the age between these verses. Even John the Baptist questioned if Jesus was the one to come because he was in jail and the kingdom was not being established. And so John the Baptist was the forerunner who Jesus called the most righteous of human beings ever to live. And when he got thrown in jail, he, he questioned whether Jesus was the Messiah or not. Why? Because he was expecting, well, the king's here, where's the kingdom? And so that was a big stumbling block. And that was a big stumbling block of why the Jews rejected him. No, I'm saying that, that they were, they recognized the people who believed Jesus as the Messiah, the King of Kings and the ruler to rule for all of eternity. They were expecting him to set it up the first time that he came. They didn't they didn't see and again it's it's he he told them himself that he was going to go back to his father. But they were they were most of that I think was just human human selfishness they want who wouldn't want him to be there all the time hey you're leaving where are you going i want you to stay with us because this is pretty nice and that's why when he went up on the mount of uh is it transconfiguration i always get that word off transfiguration is transfiguration or transconfiguration where he went up on the mountain he was trans transfigured into his glory elijah and moses were there and God spoke from heaven, and, and Peter was like, let's go ahead and build, let's establish this right now. We like this. Can you imagine, like, being, seeing, like, Moses, Jesus, Elijah, God! What? Yeah, you want him to stay. Talk about meeting a celebrity. So they all, all the people who believed in Jesus his first time, his first advent, were expecting him to set up his kingdom after he did. Even, even if you understood, even if you understood his his suffering work that he had to do. I mean, when he was telling them he had to die, they were all like, what? And if you, and if you had read, if you'd known your Old Testament, you'd known that he was the suffering servant, that he had to die. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think here in Isaiah, Isaiah 53. You destroyed my dandelion. Well, you know what? Now I think about it. Sorry, hon. Now I think about it, if we go to Daniel 9, or wait a minute, is it Daniel 9? Yeah, 24 through 27. Then we talk about the 70 weeks. We'll just jump down to 26. Um, then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. Okay, That was the Messiah being killed and have nothing. So he was killed. 
Okay, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. So, so there you have Jesus being killed, and then it instantly jumps to the tribulation period. So it's not there's no there's no explanation that there's going to be any time gap between his his you know death and resurrection. In the tribulation period. So, if you really understood your Old Testament, you probably would expect it okay. If you what? really got it, you say, okay, our, our Savior had to die. He died. He rose now. Okay, now we're going to have a seven year tribulation period well, because that's what it says. Been a little while, a but little they while. still didn't see his ascension and his second coming, which will trigger the, the, the you know, not the second coming, but the rapture will trigger that tri well, tribulation period. It's supposed to be right after. He's 2019 years late. He's not late. We don't, God's not late on anything. He's 2019 years late. Present time. No, this is what we're saying is that this is revealed in the New Testament. It's explained now. Mm -hmm. And this, all this is explained now, but it was in the Old Testament. You didn't see any of it. And you can see verse after verse where just you see the Messiah, you see his kingdom. You see the Messiah, you see his kingdom. Here we saw the Messiah, you see the tribulation period, then you see his kingdom. Because even in verse 27, he What's says. What's the tribulation period? Huh? What's the tribulation period? It's the book of Revelation, that last seven years of human history. That. It's the last seven years where where God goes back to purging Israel to the believing remnant. And it's it's what you read in the book of Revelation. It's what happens where the Antichrist takes over the world. Well, he's about... Well, if it's supposed to be... It's, they're about... When 225 times... Uh, times seven late. Well, again, you understand... You understand that God is God has decreed this from the beginning. Okay, this is not He's not in Plan B or anything like that, and He's not late. It's just He didn't re, He didn't reveal this all to the Old Testament prophets. He He did not reveal the well, the time gap. Well, I bet they're confused. So that's what we're dealing with. So now number three, the third mystery. We got to move along because we're we got one last week. The 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 rapture of the church is a mystery. Obviously, you didn't even understand that there was a church. But so this would be a mystery, but this is an additional mystery to the church. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we all we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. The next mystery we will deal with is the rapture of the church. This is when, after the last elect person of the church age, what we just discussed, believes, the Lord removes them before going back to dealing with Israel nationally in the tribulation time of Jacob's trouble. This is more fleshed out in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-18. Now we did a whole lesson on the rapture, that's why I'm kind of blowing through this. For the Lord himself will descend, this is 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-18, for the Lord himself will descend with a, from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So And so we will all, shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. So you see, Jesus comes out of heaven. Doesn't come all the way back though. You see, the, the reason we call this a rapture, and this is why we believe, I believe, that it's before the tribulation period, and this is not referring to his second coming, is because we are caught up to go to beat him with him in the air. He doesn't come all the way down. He comes down from heaven to a certain point and then blows the trumpet, and then those who are dead in Christ, anybody who's ever died in the church age that began at Pentecost, all the way up until the very last person. This is going to happen, in my opinion, like I just said, when there's a there's somebody who maybe we can call Mr. Irrelevant, you know, in the football draft this is the very last person who gets drafted, Mr. Irrelevant, Mr. Irrelevant of the church age, where he's the last elect, and once he once he's converted, I believe instantly God, that's when the rapture will happen and take take his church out of the world. Uh, but this mystery specifically refers to Christians who are alive. So you see this mystery is the rapture is more fully explained in 1 Thessalonians but when in 1 Corinthians 15 the mystery in bold the mystery in bold there is that we will not all sleep so the mystery here specifically we're talking about is not the rapture in general it is that 
not everybody's going to die. There's going to be a group of people who never die. There's most Christians will die and get raised at this point. But there's going to, if you're alive when whenever that rapture happens, even if you're not the last person to believe, you're already believing. But the last person believes while you're still alive, you'll you'll never die. You'll just be immediately glorified and taken up into the air, and you'll be with the Lord forever. And we're to comfort ourselves with this. This is comforting words. So yeah, this uh, this mystery refers to Christians who are alive and explains that they will be glorified without experiencing death, not all sleep, at the last trumpet before they are snatched up to be with their Lord. All right, number four. Yeah, we're doing pretty good on time. Number four is the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now this might be the 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 best mystery in my opinion or one of the most important ones along with Jew and Gentile no more barrier between Jew and Gentile alright this is something we really need to appreciate that we don't because it's easy not to alright Colossians 1 27 to whom God will make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery there's the word among the Gentiles which is what's the mystery Christ in you the hope of glory this mystery deals with the indwelling Holy Spirit that began at Pentecost and continues up through today. That is, when a person is saved by faith in Christ, they are immediately and permanently indwelled by the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. All believers, Romans 8-9, says that if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Christ, are indwelled at salvation and don't need to seek it afterwards. This was prophesied many times in the Old Testament. I'll give you those verses there, Jeremiah 31, 33, Joel 2, 28, Ezekiel 20, 36, 26. And of course, Jesus himself spoke about it in John 14, 17, 23 through 26, and other places. The Holy Spirit is he who regenerates, seals, illuminates, teaches, convicts believers for their sanctification. He will also raise us from the dead, Romans 8, 11. And so there's it's the reason it's it's... It is. Uh, it wasn't. You know, it was. It was pretty clearly prophesied about in the Old Testament. But it's. It's called. Um, it's called a mystery here. Maybe. Maybe it's a little more directly because the Gentiles will also have. You know, I. I, I consider this mystery the It's Christ in you, but it also may be that the Gentiles will have Christ in us as well. But I think the most important thing to realize, for us is what a blessing this is to have the indwelling Holy Spirit. And we've mentioned this before where, you know, Old Testament saints, people who got saved before Pentecost, were regenerated by the Spirit, were in some sense had the Holy Spirit with them. Jesus said the apostles before Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is with you, but he will be in you. And so there's a, there's a, there's a level of, of, and I, and I, you know, it's hard to know exactly what 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 it would be like to be a saved person without the Spirit indwelling us, because we do have it. And, but there's a level of intimacy, I guess, that you have with God that you, I don't think you had, unless you were a prophet or somebody who was, you know, particularly called for a service with God of saved people generally in the Old Testament. Because they be why why, in my opinion, why does the Holy Spirit indwell people now and before Christ he didn't this is my humble opinion is because the, the sin issue had not been taken care of that is to say those the, the, the sin of the Old Covenant believers Old Testament believers had not their, actually, their sins had not been dealt justice yet it was future and so I, for, that's just the best guess I have is that now everybody who gets saved after Christ their sins were dealt justice actually before they were even born, most people. I mean, clearly in the early setup of the church, there might have been some people who were alive, but but now anybody, obviously, who comes to faith in Christ, their sins were punished on Christ long before we were even anything. And so, so now when you come to faith, you immediately are sealed by the Spirit and indwelled and empowered for witness and all the things that He brings. That's just my guess as to why um, why, why, but not before and why after. I just think, because the Romans talks about how 
God passed over the sins previously committed, and that didn't mean he overlooked sin. never does. Every sin will be punished, ultimately, either on the sinner or on Christ. Those two. There's only two options. And God will not let one sin go unpunished. But he passed over them for a time. Like Abraham had all kinds of sin in his life. You can read about it in the Bible. And a lot of sins we don't know about. But they were all, and, and so God was still in relationship with Abraham as if he were righteous. Even though his sins, he's just letting him sin. And there's no punishment for sin. But his punishment for sin was future. But God obviously knew one day that Christ was going to bear the sins of Abraham. When Jesus died, he paid for all the sins of the, of the people who, who, who believed before him, including Abraham, including Adam. So when you had salvation before, Jesus died on the cross. You weren't indwelt. You were regenerated. You had saving faith. And the Spirit kept you by faith. And so it was, it was persevering faith in, what, in whatever was revealed to you. Again, Abraham, or Abraham, there might be a few people that... What do you mean? Yeah, you always ask why, and I always say, I don't know. I mean, why God does His plan the way He does it is is not my why, idea. I mean, why was why weren't you indwelled with the whole? I mean, well, they, I, I, my best guess is because the sin issue hadn't been dealt with, but it could have been a different saved. purpose. Still saved, still 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 permanently saved. Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. What does that mean? That means that all of his sins were going to be punished someday, but they weren't then. They were going to be forgiven. They were going to be. They were already forgiven. They were forgiven immediately when he came to saving faith. But the reason he, the reason those sins were forgiven, because God knew one day he was going to pour them out on Christ. It was future though. But he was forgiven once he believed. And anybody in the Old Testament who believed. Were, they were immediately forgiven of all their sins, past, present, and future. But the difference is the timing of the cross. They were before the cross. Right. And so God was God knew he was going to take all of Abraham's, all of Adam's, all of Eve's, you know, and all their sins that they committed, and Christ was going to pay for them. But it was a future, now we look back. But they weren't indwelled. They weren't indwelled. Now, there was prophets and kings and David that were indwelled Temporarily for purposes, but it wasn't a, a the way we are. So I'm saying that there that the prophets were had the Christ, spirit of Christ within them at times when they were prophesying, but I don't think it was ever a permanent thing with anybody. Even David, David was regenerated, had saving faith. The spirit. What do you mean by regenerated? Regeneration is when God makes you alive. It may, he he causes faith. Is that's what. That's what regeneration does. There are people who would argue that you're regenerated after faith, but I think biblically it's clear that God is decisive in saving faith. That means he causes saving faith, and he causes it by regeneration. For whatever time period that God has decided that this person is going to be saved, he's going to believe, whether it be Old Testament saints or New Testament saints, what God does is he, he does something effective in the heart by the Spirit. And that's what regeneration is. He makes you alive spiritually. And then he makes your will alive, and then your then through you, then your will, then you believe, then you actually believe. But God does something effectively to your heart that causes faith. And now, specifically, my opinion, the the process of somebody who gets saved now is they hear the gospel or they know the gospel from a previous encounter of gospel, or they could be reading scripture, or there could be a, a thousand different ways a person has the knowledge of Jesus Christ and God regenerates them they're made alive they were dead in sin they understood intellectually the gospel offer or the the explanation of sin and judgment and everything else in Jesus Christ death burial and resurrection and perfect life why do you, why do you think we were indwelled then they were indwelled well that's my opinion is that because the sin because that's my opinion. Again, God could have had different purposes for... Um, the cross changed everything. The Christ coming in the cross work changed everything. And so that's just why I think that after the cross, that's why... And Jesus, the best we can do is, is Jesus says he must... It was, it was also a f form of a reward for Christ when he ascended. That's what he kept. He when the apostles when he was telling them that he was going to leave, and they were all sad. 
Jesus said, you know, this is it's to your advantage that I go away because then the Holy Spirit will come. And so we've talked about the why would that be an advantage? How could possibly be an advantage for the etern- for the Son of God to leave? It makes no sense. But what he's saying is that the Spirit of God, his Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, is going to indwell each believer. And Jesus Christ is was was locational. Because he was one person. He's one human, you know, he's truly God and truly human. And according to his human nature, he's locational. And so now Christ is in every believer, and so there's more. There's more, uh, there's the ability to, that's why I said we'll do greater works than even he did. They're like, what? We're going to do greater works than Jesus Christ did? And people will take that and say, well, we ought to be healing and we ought to be raising the dead. That's not the purpose. That's not what we're talking about. It's not about there's more, there's more expansion and ex- extensive work uh, because we're, there's more, we're, we're more people than Jesus was one person. When you said location, though, go back to that Jesus Christ is locational. He's not here. So he's, and it's interesting, it's a, it's a difficult subject to know that obviously Jesus Christ is God. He is, he's one person with two distinguishable but not separable natures. He's truly God and truly human. Okay, so there, that's, that's just hard to get your head around, but it's just what the Bible teaches. He's, he's truly God. He created everything. He's the one true God, but he's also truly human. Now, according to his divine nature, He's omnipresent. He's in this room. He's present with us. Christ is through his... He fully shares the one nature of God with the Father and the Spirit. Okay, so so according to his divine nature of Jesus Christ, he is omnipresent in that sense. But according to his human nature, he's not here. Because obviously, what are we waiting for? We're waiting for him to come back. According, but it, So it's a difficult thing. And so knowing that Jesus Christ is God... Then his spirit in is, and he fully shares the one nature. Then he's omnipresent. He's here in that sense, but according to his human nature, he's not here. We're waiting for his return, and so in that sense, he's locational. He's not here. We don't see Jesus Christ, and people who say they see Jesus Christ are crazy because he's not here, and he doesn't. He doesn't do visions and things like that. Like that. Well, we'll see him one day, and you'll know. You won't have any doubt. Now, it'll probably be the rapture when you're re- either resurrected or changed, and you won't have any doubt who you're looking at. You won't be, well, is that Jesus? I wonder if that's Jesus. We'll know. Show me some ID. Yeah. You won't have a, you won't need that new passport card. So, all right. But anyway, to quickly answer that question, I think salvation is regeneration. makes a, makes a person alive. They believe. It causes faith, and then he, then he indwells. So it's like regeneration, faith, and dwelling, and then he keeps you through faith. It's important to know that saving faith is spirit-caused faith, and it's it's, it's spirit-produced faith. So he causes the faith, and he also continues the faith. The spirit does. That's why you don't have to worry about if you're genuinely born again, if anybody's genuinely born again, that you'll wake up tomorrow morning and not believe. That'd be a terrifying thought. There's people out there who think that you can lose your salvation. Well, how do you lose that? You stop believing. Because the Bible does say if you don't persevere in your faith, you won't be saved. And so that's that could be a terrifying thing. But when you understand the Bible also teaches in Peter, 1 Peter, I think, where, the, where he keeps you through faith. And that means that God, by the power of God, he keeps. The reason I believe today, and I know for sure that I'll believe tomorrow, is because I have the Spirit powering that faith. And he does that for every believer. And so there's the process. Regeneration by the Spirit makes a person alive, causes their faith. Once they believe, He indwells, and He keeps them by faith. And that's why it's all of God. He caused it, and He keeps you because He elected you, because He loved you. And, and the only reason you can have that is because Jesus Christ came and lived the perfect life, and He paid your hell. He paid anybody's hell who won't go to hell. And this is, again, a point where you just always got to bow down to Christ and praise Him because He didn't have to do it. He did it because He loved you. And so when we're going through our days and we get frustrated and we're like, is He worth serving? And is it's a hard day, this and this and that. You just got to think back on what He did for you. And you'll never, ever, ever be able to appreciate what He did for you because you'll never experience the hell He paid for you. And He didn't have to. And He did it because He loved you. And that's an incredible thing. And he doesn't do it for everybody. I'm sorry, he didn't die for everybody. 
He died for the sheep. And so that's a that's an incredible thing. I know that I find that almost there's very few things that cause me to worship Christ even you know when I just think about him already taking the beating, already spit on, already insulted. Who knows what he went through before he got to the cross, nailed in his hands, hanging. He's the son of God, stripped, you know, humiliated in just every possible way. And he's the eternal son of God. Could have stopped at any time he wanted to. And that's not. That's just the warm-up act for when he was on the cross and he drank the cup. I mean, three hours of darkness, he was hanging there and he... he could have got down anytime he wanted to. He he endured judgment that we will never even comprehend. You know, and he didn't have to do it. So that 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 should make any Christian very very it's hard because I say this and teach this and I can be grumpy and and, <laughs> and complaining the next minute because yes. something goes wrong. But it really should keep us praising him. That alone. I mean, he could ruin our lives for whatever reason, for his glory, and we should, we would never have any opportunity to complain. But it's hard because we live in the body, and we and we struggle, and we struggle with sin, and and we are to we are to keep our eyes set upon him and on the future kingdom. But it's hard; it's a battle because you got real issues and real life and in difficulties here. And he says we will have trials and difficulties, and we understand that he does everything for a good purpose in a, in a believer's life, and you got to hang on to that. But it's still you got to be awfully dedicated and um, serious about trusting. trusting in order to endure those things without complaining. And that's the issue I struggle with every single day is about the dumbest things that you can think of, you know, the schedule and all these things. And I just think, and I just know every time I'm about to grumble, <laughs> don't do it. Think rightly. Think about what he did. You have no right to complain. And it's going to get better. He always, he never lets you down. He's always faithful. You know he's doing something good. But hey, it hurts right now, so I'm going to grumble. That's usually how that goes. Okay, let's stop. All right, we'll stop there. We got through, at least, more than we did last time.